How many people in the room would say that you have a social media account? That's fewer people than I expected, and I'm guessing that the people who didn't put their hands up are thinking, I don't do this audience participation stuff. <laughs> That's okay. That's absolutely fine. But I would expect that the majority of people in this room have some form of social media. Now, social media is a bit of a weird terminology because it's only really come into full effect in the last sort of 15, 20 years. But when you define social media, it actually dates back thousands and thousands of years. Because the definition of social media is some sort of signal that you send out to the outside world to draw attention to yourself. Now, if we use that definition, we can kind of go back as far as things like smoke signals and drums and fire. And then as time went on, we had letters as people started to write, uh, and then telegrams, and then telephones, which are the things before mobile phones. There was a, a word before phone. I don't know if anyone, some people in the room may not remember that. Um, but nowadays, we have the internet for obvious reasons, and we use it for social media. And social media websites started in around about 1997 with something called Six Degrees. Does anyone remember a website called Six Degrees? Was anyone on Six Degrees? No, it was quite small, but it was essentially like a kind of light version of Facebook. You could create your own profile, you could connect with other people, and you could post status updates. But photos were not its thing. Videos weren't really a thing. But this is 1997. Six Degrees was obviously based on the theory that you are six degrees of separation away from everybody in the world. Not sure whether or not that is factually accurate, but that was a theory at the time. But in 2000, we had the launch of something called MySpace. Does anyone remember MySpace? I was on MySpace. I was friends with Tom. Was everyone else friends with Tom? Tom was the founder of MySpace, for those who don't know, and he was friends with everybody. And that was his thing. He never really posted anything, but he was just there sitting at his desk in front of the computer, smiling um, as your friend. Then we had Bebo. Was anyone else on Bebo? I never really understood Bebo. It was a bit weird. Some of this is before some of your time, so I really appreciate it. This is a history lesson. But we had MySpace. We had Bebo. LinkedIn started in the early 2000s, which some people will still be in, and it's still going now. 2005 was YouTube, which is only 12 years ago. For some people, it seems like they can't imagine life without YouTube. Um, and I know some people are slightly addicted to kind of the random cat videos or various things, whatever YouTube is, is filled with. But that was 2005, which means that there was 20 years of my life before YouTube even existed, which I don't really remember, which is slightly <laughs> concerning. But, but there we go. Um, 2006 was Facebook and Twitter. Now, I joined Facebook in 2006. I know this because I went back through my timeline because I don't really post that much on Facebook. For me, social media, and Facebook in particular, is very much a tool for kind of keeping tabs on other people. <laughs> Not so much sharing what's going on in my life, um, which is a, an interesting purpose. But um, I joined Facebook in 2006, and if you look back through your timeline, there are some really, really, really interesting things that come up, both in terms of things that I've said and uh, photos that I've decided is a good idea to post on there, as some of the young adults know from, uh, from an event earlier on. But since then, we've had things like Foursquare, we've had things like Instagram, we've had Snapchat, we've had all sorts of different, and even more, there's far more social media sites than any of us are really aware of, and a lot of them are quite niche. They're looking at particular kind of areas. And now, it is at a ridiculous scale or an immense scale. Ridiculous is kind of a, a disparaging term, but I would describe it as a little bit ridiculous. Take Facebook as an example, right? 
Facebook has every single day, as of February 2018, 1.4 billion people logging on on a daily basis. That's not everybody on Facebook. That's the people who are logging in every day. So 1.4 billion people. Five new profiles are created on Facebook every second. Every second. Not all of them genuine, I hasten to add, but five new profiles are created every second. Every minute, we have 510,000 comments posted, 293,000 statuses are updated, and 136,000 photos are uploaded to Facebook alone. Which kind of begs the question, why are we doing this? <laughs> and I mean we as in we, but also the planet as a whole. Why are we putting our lives out there on Facebook? And there are various different theories, most of which are my own. I have various different theories. I would like to be able to reference these theories, and I'm sure other people have thought of them, but I apologize for those at university. I haven't referenced this. Um, they're mostly off the top of my head. But what, theory number one is that we're bored. Essentially, we want to keep ourselves entertained, which is hence why the cat videos and the videos of the dog pulling various different faces and all, all sorts, whatever you happen to be into. Annoying Orange was one of my children's recent thing. I don't know if you're familiar with Annoying Orange. If you're not, that's great. Please don't Google it. Um, but the other theory is that we, we kind of have a gratification need that we some, sometimes, if we're honest, we like to look at Facebook, and I, if I'm completely honest, I like to use this a little bit. I like to look at other people's lives and think, I'm doing all right. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, and then there's also a theory that um, actually, as human beings, we have an inherent need to connect with one another. That we need to be or want to be needed that we want to connect with other people. We want to have friends. And that's kind of how social media was built to us originally and still is to this day. Social media is meant to make us more social than we ever have been before. It was made to, made to uh, allow us to have more friends than ever before, to, know, to be more connected, to know what's going on. Unfortunately, and I don't know if this is the case in your house, the, the reality of it tends to be this picture, which is gonna come up. Now this couple are a couple and are talking to each other via Facebook about what to have for food that evening. Now, this is a genuine, this is not a genuine picture, I've made this up, okay, but it's okay, this, this is the analogy, right? This, this conversation will go something along the lines of, fancy a Chinese tonight, Chinese flag emoji. Nah, curry would be better, Indian flag emoji. Thumbs up emoji, glasses clinking emoji, happy face, kiss. That's, if we're honest, that's how some of our conversations work. And there will be couples in this room, and I'm not naming names or looking in any direction in particular, who may have conversations like this on Facebook. Now, when I see you having these conversations on Facebook, I assume that you're in different rooms, but I don't know this. <laughs> I'd like to assume that you're in different houses or different workplaces or various things, but you could be sitting next to each other at a table having these conversations. And that kind of brings out the... The next theory of actually, yes, it is about connecting with each other. But in reality, maybe it's about projecting to each other some of the time. Again, if we're honest. So it's about personal marketing. And this is where the rise of the social media celebrity has kind of come in. It's about what image do you want to project to the world? And that's generally what Facebook is used for or what Twitter is used for, if we're honest, is we, we're very selective about what we post. Now, I've just said... I don't really post that much. That's because I'm quite selective about what I post. But what I do choose to post on there 
is what I want other people to see. It's not necessarily everything that's going on in my life. Some people use social media a bit like that, but even then, they're still going to be selective about what they're posting, what they're projecting to the world. And for me, it brought a bit of a realization, just thinking about this, that actually I project different images of myself to different contexts of my life. So I have a Tim according to Facebook. I have a Tim according to Twitter. I have a Tim according to YouTube, because I have a YouTube channel. There's so lots of educational stuff on there. You're more than welcome to have a look. Um, Self-plug. Um, but also, there is a Tim according to my friends' Facebook profiles, which is a very different thing entirely. If you click on the photos of you section, it brings up all the photos that other people have posted of you on Facebook. They are not the ones you want on Facebook. <laughs> but there is also the Tim that I project while I'm at work. There's the Tim according to my work colleagues. There's the Tim that I project while I'm at church, because there's the Tim according to, to church, and they're not necessarily the same thing week in, week out. There is the Tim according to my kids. There is the Tim according to my wife, which is starting to get a little bit closer to home, um, sometimes disturbingly so. And then there's the one that is hardest to pin down. And it is the one that, if I'm entirely honest, I'm not even convinced that I have a handle on. And that is the Tim according to my heart. And that, interestingly enough, is what God is interested in. Because all this stuff that we project, God's not really that bothered. Because he sees past it all. We haven't really got any privacy filters when it comes to God, which is a little bit concerning at various different points. But we know that God is interested in our hearts. And that's what I'm talking about today. This, this morning is about building one another. And we are going to talk about that a little bit. Okay? Um, but what I would like to, to talk about is about developing a heart for building one another. Because it has to start with us. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 talks about God looking for a particular type of heart. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And the people that he's talking to have obviously done a foolish thing. And from now on, they will be at war. However, the principle remains that God is looking for a heart that is fully committed to him. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says this, which is a little bit more concerning. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. In other words, that's what I mean about not really having a handle on it myself. I can think that everything is fine. I can think that my life is, is okay. And certainly when I look at other people, I can think, you know what, I'm doing all right. But actually God's interested in my heart. And that's more than just even the perception that I project to myself on occasion. So for those of you who are sitting there and thinking, well, hold on, we're supposed to be talking about building one another. This is meant to be about other people. Don't make it about me. This is meant to be about other people. Um, and that's the temptation, really, isn't it? Because if we're honest, that's a lot easier if we make it about other people. And I am brilliant at that. Particularly when it comes to social media, I'm very good at seeing other people's issues. I'm very good at seeing other people's problems, or certainly about making my own judgments about other people's issues. But... When we talk about building one another, we're not actually talking about the relationships where I think I'm better than you and I'm going to help you along the way because I think I'm further along. What we're talking about is building something together, a building one another, which is a reciprocal process and me recognizing that actually I need help building myself just as much as you need help building you, regardless of when I became a Christian, regardless of whether I think I've got it all together, regardless of my financial or educational or social status, I need help just as much as anybody else. And if we don't get the heart right, 
we're not going to build efficiently together. And we're certainly not going to build one another. So that's where we're going to start. It's a little bit like the conversations that I have with my kids, which are when one of them does something wrong and the other one retaliates, I tell both of them off. And they're saying, well, that's what he did. He did it. He started it. He did it. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're responsible for your behavior. You know you hear yourself saying things that your parents said to you when you were younger, right? It's those sorts of moments. You are responsible for your behavior, not his. He's responsible for his behavior. You're responsible for your behavior. It's exactly the same principle. We're responsible for our own heart. And that's where we have to start. We're looking at this year a rise and build which is looking at the story of, Jer- of Nehemiah, not Jeremiah, Nehemiah. And we are going to look at a few different passages throughout that story that kind of look at the inquiries that Nehemiah made. But Nehemiah is looking at rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, Jerusalem is generally seen as the place, or certainly after the point it's established, once the people of Israel get to that point. It's seen as the place where God's temple is built, where the interaction between man and God happens, where that relationship is, where the priests are, where you can come and you can bring your difficulties and your sins and you can give your offering and you can have redemption. You can come back into a right standing with God, where God's spirit actually fell and he interacted with man. But that's Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus comes, tears down the barriers between God and man. There's the thing of when Jesus died and took his last breath, it split the curtain in the temple, the curtain between the Holy of Holies, where God was and where the people was, split it in two, symbolic of the breaking down of that barrier between God and man. And what that means is that that place of relationship, that place of interaction, isn't Jerusalem anymore. It's our hearts. It's his church, it's the hearts of his people, it's each one of us individually. So what I'd like to propose is when we look at the story of Nehemiah, when we look at some of the inquiries that he's going to make, think about it in the context of rebuilding your heart. Because that is the place of communion with God now. That is the place where God interacts with his people. That's the place of stability where his spirit comes in. So think about it in that context. And I'm going to pose three questions that I'd like you to consider. And like most preach questions, they are rhetorical. I'm not after answers. Please don't come up to me at the end and give me the answers to these questions. Um, I, I would be interested, but it's really none of my business. But I want you to think about them and take them to heart. Take them personally. Because if we all together find the individual answers to these questions, I believe that we'll be much better at building one another as we go along. So the first question is simply this, how is my heart? And this is kind of a inquiry level question, okay? So if we look at the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one, verse one to four, and I will just have a drink, bear with me. Okay, in the month of Kislev, In the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, which is essentially set in the context for where Nehemiah is, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived in the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So the first question that Nehemiah has 
is, how is everything going? You know, back there where I don't really spend a huge amount of time, I've come out, he's out of this situation, he's in a different area, but he's asking, how is it? How is Jerusalem? How is that place where God actually interacts with his people? What's it like? What's it like for the people who are there? And we have to understand our hearts. Sometimes we have to ask the question of how's it going? What's the situation? Is there anything that needs dealing with? Okay? The reason for that is because our heart can be a limiting factor. When we talk about our hearts, there's a verse that, that pretty much always springs to mind, and you will have heard, if you've, you've heard a lot of preachers, you will have heard this come up quite a few times when you're talking about God's view of the heart, which is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. And this is when Samuel, the prophet, is looking for a new king for Israel. And it's, and it's this. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you'll have heard this many, many times talking about King David and the rise of King David and King David's heart for the Lord and, and how that qualified him to be a part of God's plan. But what I often forget is that this verse, if you just keep it on the screen, does this, this verse isn't talking about David. This is talking about David's older brother, who looked brilliant, had everything sorted, was muscular, had a, you know, clearly looked kingly, looked regal, because Samuel wanted this guy as king. But there was something about his heart that disqualified him from being a part of what God was doing. And it meant that David could come in instead. And God will always use the people whose hearts are right and whose hearts are receptive, regardless of outward appearance. But the point is, we can look like we've got it all together, but our hearts can disqualify us from being a part of what God is doing. So it's important to know your heart. Proverbs 21.2 says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart, which is a scripture that we had on earlier on. Proverbs 17.3 says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Sometimes we need to take a good hard look at our heart and ask ourselves, how's it going? But it's really easy at this point to get downhearted, pun intended. It's okay. If you glossed over that, don't worry. See, it was, it was bad. So let's keep in context God's promises, okay? Because what we don't want to do is look at our hearts and think, oh, it's, it, actually, it's not going really well, okay? This is the context for what we're talking about, okay? God's promise is this. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And it moves on a few verses. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. That's what we're talking about. The desolate land will be cultivated. Instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it, they will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you will, that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Okay? 
So look at your heart, but in the context of this is what God is going to do. Yeah? Don't get downhearted. Don't get desolate. Don't think, oh, all the bad stuff, that I'm, I'm such a horrible person. That's not the point. The point is God wants to rebuild it. But there's a process that has to be gone through. The first part of that process is how is it? How are you doing? And be honest with yourself, but don't be downhearted. There is a promise. There is a hope. There is grace. There is love. It's all okay. Okay? Everyone happy with that context? Good. Okay, so question number two is how do I need to change? So how is your heart? Or how is my heart? How do I need to change? Okay, Nehemiah 2, 11 to 16. I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. Not lots of others, a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, which is a brilliant name for a gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there wasn't enough room for my mount to get through. Can, can you feel the detail? I like the detail there. Um, there wasn't enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back, re-entered it through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He wants to sort it out. He's inquired, what, what's the state of your heart? Actually, it needs a bit of work. Right, fine. What exactly do I need to do? Where exactly do I need to put the effort in? Now, you'll notice that he does this not publicly. This is a private thing. And that's why I don't want to know the answers to these questions. Okay? It's a private thing. All right? You can do it with a few others, one or two, who will be helpful, who will help you along. But do it privately. The actual intricacies of what you need to do with your heart, the key things that need to change, not everyone needs to know about. But they do need sorting. And actually, this is, a lot of this is about perspective. There's um, educational theory called transformational learning. Now, if you're into educational theory, you've got a background in education, or you're a teacher or something like that, you'll know that educational theory is ridiculous. There is huge amounts of different theories about how people learn. What we're talking about with transformational learning isn't acquiring knowledge. So we're not talking about how you retain knowledge and how you kind of cram for exams and how you read what's in books and learn what's in books. Transformational learning is about what you learn about how the world works, which is a different context. Now, the key thing with transformational learning is that I have to recognize that I see the world a certain way. So I see the world a certain way. You see the world a certain way. The reasons for that will all be due to my background, due to my upbringing, due to any previous experience that I've had, due to any traumatic experiences that I've had, due to any various issues that have come along. And they shape the way that we see the world. Key relationships shape the way that we see the world. That's why we make statements like, oh, this always happens to me. Or, oh, typical. That's, you know, it's, it's, we, we have this expectation that the world will work a certain way. And that's our viewpoint. The only way that we learn that the world is different is if we accept that my view of the world might not actually be how it is. And that someone else has a different 
view. If we put it in the context of our faith, we have to accept that actually God might have a different view of the way the world works than I do. And most of us know that, but not many of us live like it. So if I live as though God sees the world differently to how I do, then I will question my motives behind what I do or what happens or the way that I interact with the world. But just recognizing that God has a different perspective isn't enough to change the way we see the world. The key thing the transformational learning, and it is a theory, but the key thing the transformational learning is that you have to get to a point where enough pressure is applied for you to be forced to change the way that you see things. And that's why when things like having kids happens, we end up seeing the world differently or we change the priorities of our life because suddenly we've got so much pressure and so much lack of sleep and everything else that's going on that we're forced to change the way that we see the world. That's why traumatic experiences change the way that we see the world. Rightly or wrongly, they shape the way that we interact with future relationships because there's so much pressure applied that we're forced to change the way that we see things. We're forced to change our perspective. Now, I believe that God is into transformational learning. He wants to change the way that we see the world. He wants to change the way that we see our hearts and see ourselves, to not be fooled by the image that we project onto ourselves of actually I'm doing all right, but to change the way that we see us, to allow us to see ourselves the way that he sees us. And the reason I know this is because of a really famous passage, which is Romans 12, 2, which is, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We have to allow ourselves to be transformed. Sometimes that means allowing God to put pressure where he needs to put pressure. Nehemiah did a survey of the walls, went around the whole city, checked where the key weak points were, and knew where he needed to put attention. When we're examining our hearts, what are the key things that you need God to apply some pressure to? And it is very much a case of be careful what you pray for. Because it may not be an enjoyable experience, but it will be worth it if we allow God to apply the pressure to those parts of ourselves that we need to deal with. Whether it's that area of sin that we've kind of let slide and convinced ourselves that we've got it all together and it's fine, it's only every so often. Or whether it's a particular habit formation, whether it's a particular um, characteristic, whether we find that we, we're angry a lot of the time, whether it's a relationship that we know isn't healthy. All of those situations are things that God wants to apply pressure to. Now, God is gracious, and he allows us to go through those processes in a way that we will come out the other side. doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, but it means that if we allow him to, he wants to bring healing to those areas. So, how is your heart? How is it? If you're completely and utterly honest. And where do you need to change? Where do I need to change? Now, those are difficult questions, but for that to happen and for us to start to build one another and help us through those questions, we have to be real with ourselves and we have to be real with one another. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, it says this, let us consider 
how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some have done. And that's why I've started with social media. Because social media is a brilliant way of projecting who we want to be perceived as to everybody else without actually having to meet them. How many people on your Facebook profiles do you actually meet on a regular basis? How many have you met in the last year? How many have you met in the last five years for those who've been on social media for that period of time? Okay. For us to change and be real and genuine with one another, we have to actually be real with each other. That means meeting each other, even when it's uncomfortable. And by meeting, I don't mean being in the same room as someone like the couple on the screen earlier on. I mean being genuinely in the room with each other, interacting with each other, being honest with those few others who you can go around the walls of your heart with, who you can spend some time working on the key areas that God wants to. But we have to be real because the purpose is spurring one another on, not dealing with my issues, not dealing with your issues. That's a byproduct. What we want to do, the objective, is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some have done, but encouraging one another. Let's encourage one another on this journey because I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. Whether we're talking about dealing with the issues of my heart, I can't do that on my own because I've tried and it's not really working. But also, when we're talking about building church, when we're talking about building one another, if we want to build something significant, we can't do it on our own. We can't do it independently of each other. We need one another and we need each other to be the best that we possibly can be. So, we need to encourage one another. We need to spur each other on, but we need to be real. We need to meet one another where we're at and be okay with that and be real with each other. And that is going to require a certain amount of humility because we're going to have to be humble and real about the issues that we deal with and about some of the areas we wouldn't really like other people to see. But out of that place of humility can come question number three, which is how can I help? Because that question, to be genuine, has to come from a place of humility. If I still see myself as superior to other people or still see myself as overly kind of, I've, I've, got, it, I've got this area of my life, certainly don't look at that bit, but I've got this area of my life that's, that's absolutely all together and fine and I can see someone who's really struggling with that so I'll help them. That's not a place of humility and that's not how we're going to build one another effectively. What's going to build one another effectively is, do you know what? I've been a mess. I may not be a mess now, I've been a mess or I'm in a struggle or I'm in a difficulty, but... How can I help? There's a couple of scriptures in Nehemiah where this attitude of how can I help is demonstrated. You've got Nehemiah 3, 22 to 25, which is a, is a passage or certainly part of a passage that Ben referenced a few weeks ago, which is where the people are rebuilding the wall. So you've got the repairs next to him. We jumped in halfway through. There's a big long list of various different people who are building different parts of the wall. So we're about halfway through. The repairs next to him, whoever him was, were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab, or Hashab, Hashab, we'll go with that. Benjamin and Hashab, could be a social media site, you're right made repairs in front of their house and next to them. 
Azariah, son of Messiah, and the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binuai, son of Henadad. Do you like pronunciation of these names? I'm impressed. Uh, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner, and Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower, projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Okay? Focus in on Benjamin, Hasab, Azariah, son of Messiah, and the son of Ananiah. Okay? They're making repairs in front of their house. They're doing it where they happen to be. What they're not doing is complaining, I've got to repair this part of the wall, and somebody else gets to repair the other part of the wall. Okay? I really, I really want to do the bit by the king's pool, because it's the king's pool. That's amazing. I'm stuck with the dung gate. Who wants the dung? It's all of that sort of thing. That is not happening. What's happening is there's an attitude of, this needs doing. We need to build something. We want to build something significant. We want to build a place where God can interact with his people in safety, where the people can feel safe enough to open up before their God and commune with their God, where it can be a place of refuge where people come to because there are walls protecting them from the outside world. This is what we want to build. How can I help? I'll do the bit that's allocated to me. Even if it doesn't happen to be the most glamorous or the bit that I particularly want to do at this moment in time, I'll do what's in front of me. And maybe later on, I can get promoted and do stuff in the king's pool and various different things around it. But that's not the point. That's not my motivation. My motivation is I just want to help build something. I want to build something that is significant. Nehemiah also came across some opposition to the work. So there's the building, what's in front of you. Nehemiah 4 Verse 19 to 22, they've got opposition to the work. They've got people coming in from the outside saying, actually, we're not happy with you building this. Nehemiah's response is, said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper Stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. That's a 24-hour shift pattern. But they could do it because they had people who had the attitude of, how can I help? When other people are struggling with their building, when other people are struggling because they're under attack, how can I help? I'll go and help them out. Because I know that at times I'm going to need some help. That attitude has to come from a place of humility. We have to start with dealing with our hearts first so that we can help each other effectively. But opposition will come. So let's support each other. Let's encourage one another. Let's remind each other where we need to be reminded of those promises in Ezekiel 36. That when things are difficult, when time is tough and we feel like the worst Christian in the world, that actually God's promise is that he will build us up. That he will replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He will pour out his spirit. He will breathe new life into us. Not in a pity party. Not being patronizing. Oh, poor you. My life's all right but in a genuine way that is helping to build one another as we go along. So how is your heart? What do you need to change? For some of you, what you need to change is you need Jesus. For somebody here, they, they may, you may not know Jesus at all. You may not have invited Jesus into your heart and actually that's what needs to change. You need that moment of Jesus interacting with you.
you need that moment of Jesus coming in and saying, it's a bit of a mess, but I want to help you. I want to restore you. I want to build you up. I want to develop you into the person you were always made to be. And for somebody, that, that moment might be this morning. So I want to give you that opportunity. If there is someone here who the thing that you need to change, if you're honest, you need Jesus to come into your heart in a real tangible way. This is your morning. So if everybody just close their eyes for a second. I just want to give you a moment to respond to that message. And all I'm going to ask you to do is to put your hand up. And in that moment, I will see, and there's a couple of guys at the back who are looking out who can come and talk to you and pray with you and help you bring Jesus into your life. But if that's what you want to do for the first time this morning, then take that opportunity now. Just put your hand up right here and now. For the rest of us, let's consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Let's develop hearts for building one another. Hearts that don't push, that don't inflict our agendas on other people, but simply say, out of humility, how can I help?